0: Hi, I'm Esau Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast, on the Ringer Podcast Network.
1: If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It's Off the Pike presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president-select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit the slash RG.
3: This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability, no system no matter how advanced can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions, always drive safely.
2: Welcome into off the pike. I'm Brian Barrett joining us now, Dr. Bill Simmons, Dr. Bill, thanks so much for taking some time. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you
4: for having me on.
2: Yeah, we're excited. So want to get into the Celtics a little bit. So I found out this is your 50th year as a season ticket holder.
4: This is my 50th year. The first year was the 73-74 season, and I started carrying my son, and I had one ticket, one seat, started carrying my son, Bill, and in, sat in my lap, and uh, we saw a championship that first year. And, of course, I thought, oh, this is great. We're going to see championship every year, but obviously it doesn't work out that way. But we, we've seen many championships, and so this is my 50th year. Hard to believe.
2: That's crazy. So was there ever a time where you thought like about giving the tickets up, like maybe in the Patino era or something along those lines? Well, never a
4: time where I thought I'd give them up, but I didn't go to many games. Particularly the Patino era, also the era after uh, Bird, McHale and Parrish left and yes. Reggie, Lewis, Reggie Lewis passed away. Um, that was a tough stretch. So I'd have uh, friends and family members use the tickets, but I never gave them up. And and Bill would take them and take college friends or girlfriends or it was a good date.
2: Yeah, no doubt about that. So,
4: but I, I never, never wanted to give them up now.
2: I was talking to uh, Antoine Walker like a week and a half ago. Uh, he came on the pod and we were talking about the Patino era. And what stuck out to me about that is they were so shocked, like, in the locker room, he was saying, when they traded Chauncey Billups. Like, that's got to be one of the worst moves the organization has made. The guy was a rookie, and they decided to trade him midway through his first season. It's, like, one of the most perplexing decisions to basically bring in Kenny Anderson.
4: It, it made no sense to anybody, um, particularly to give up on a draft pick that quickly. And, and he showed promise. I mean, he also showed promise as a leader in the huddle. You know, one of the things Bill and I always looked at over the years was what's happening in the huddle. You know, they're listening to the coach, the players listening to each other. And Billups had an impact as even his rookie year. And then all of a sudden he's gone. And uh, look at the career he had. I, I know he bounced around a little bit, though, in the beginning. I mean, he, he might have been on three or four teams before the Detroit era. Um, Patina was such a nightmare.
2: Uh, oh my god!
4: You know, it's a sad, a sad period. We've had a couple of sad periods. That was certainly one of the worst. Um, the Bob McAdoo, which would have been before your time, that was another sad period. Uh, right now, it's hard. I don't look back that way. Uh, I love this team. I love the team last year and uh, injury free. We might go all the way again.
2: Yeah, I'm with you. And one of the things I really enjoy about this group is, and even more so than maybe 08, but definitely some of these super teams we've seen, it's kind of cool to see where this team has come from, right? Because we've gotten to see Tatum's entire career here, Jalen Brown's entire career here. Same thing with Marcus Smart. And I mean, we recognize Al Horford as a Celtic now, his second stint with the team. But it is kind of cool to see them kind of go through what they did last year and the way that they've started the season. It seems like they've been shot out of a cannon.
4: I agree. Uh. I certainly had – I wondered all summer how they'd come out this season because it was so devastating to lose the way they did. And for me, that meant game four in the finals. You know, they have the lead with four minutes to go. I think they're up five. We look pretty good. Uh, and all of a sudden, that collapse, and that was it, really. Uh, after that, Tatum just looked like he had no legs. Um, And I wondered all summer, how do you get over that kind of collapse when really that game four was in their hands, ready to be won? But it was great how they came in right from the beginning, even with all the coaching turmoil, which obviously nobody expected. I mean, that came out of the blue, and they've overcome that. Um, I also noticed this year, it looks like the teamwork is even better. Uh, But for some reason, Tatum has even taken another step toward a different level of superstar and he's incorporating all the other players differently than last year. Um, he also looks bigger. Uh, you said you yeah. were at the game Friday. Uh, he, he just gets bigger and bigger. And I, what is he only 24 years old? Uh,
2: yeah, it's pretty impressive. Like I, I was watching it the other night just in terms of comparing him to previous years, how well he's finishing at the basket he's going through people and Getting back to your point about like how this team was going to respond, I think it all starts with Tatum, right? Because we Chris Mannix had that big article in Sports Illustrated about how Tatum took the loss and how upset he was about it and how much work he put into the offseason. And all that stuff is coming onto the court right now with Tatum. You've seen him take that leap to get to a different level. And the thing that sticks out to me is just he can just turn it on when he wants to. Like the game last week where okay, the Pistons, the first time they played the Pistons, they were competitive, and then all of a sudden, Tatum goes for 16 points in a row in five minutes, and he just completely takes over the game. And so now when I'm looking at him and just comparing him to the rest of the guys in the league, I don't think you can get to five guys that are better than Tatum right now. I think he's now in that stratosphere in the NBA.
4: I agree with you. Uh, you know, again, going back to wondering what how he would come out for this new season... He looked so frustrated, tired, um, spent at the end of that uh, finals against Golden State. Um, And we didn't hear much from him. Even the interviews that he did at the end of the season, it was hard to tell uh, how frustrated he was in terms of um, the culpability he was taking to the loss in a couple of those games. Uh, And then we don't hear much from him during the summer i was glad to hear uh, to read in that article that he took it so painfully and seriously and took responsibility and and did everything he could over the summer to come back and be stronger and uh, i mean it's a long season I, I already reading in the paper today they're wondering if they should lower some of his minutes he's playing a lot of minutes again and it's i mean it's still november but that i was really happy to hear how seriously he took his role in having to get stronger uh, having to be more of a leader and how to come back in a really positive way and i think he has i mean he's you see it in the huddle he's really positive
2: yeah and one of the things i've noticed dr bill is just his defense has gotten to a different level too this year as well he was a really good defender last year i mean we all remember yeah. what he did to kevin durant in that yeah. net series where he completely dominated him but Right now, with Robert Williams not in the mix, of course, because of that injury, he's been the best defender on the team. He's been much better than Smart defensively. He's been better than Derek White. And I know Al has a different role, but Jason Tatum is not only the best offensive player on this team right now, he's the best defensive player as well. And I think it's interesting how they sort of use him, right? Like, he, in one of these games last week, was doing the same thing that Robert Williams does, where they had him in that, like, Roma role, where he was covering, like— a poor shooter and he was just coming off and blocking shots. That's another thing to me that sticks out about Tatum, just how intense he plays on that side of the floor. Like he, and to your point about the minutes, he is out there playing 100% the entire game. He does not take possessions off.
4: No, he never does. You, you, you're right though about the defense. It, it's as if he's guarding, he's playing five different positions in, on defense. He'll guard centers, he'll guard power forwards. And then he'll be out on the uh, perimeter guarding uh, point guards. And he's quick enough to stay with most of those point guards. I mean, there was a good matchup with Ivy the other night, who's really quick, and I'm very impressed with him on Detroit as a rookie. But Tatum was guarding him. They kind of had a a mano-a-mano period during the game. Um, It's impressive. And not only is he stronger, he seems quicker. Uh, it's so hard to remember the guy that played in the finals. This wasn't the same guy. He was just so uh, beat up, I guess, and too many minutes. And the Robert Williams injury in the finals made him play more minutes. So it's it's good to see him so refreshed. I worry, though, it's only November. I mean, the minutes are going to add up. And uh, who knows when Robert Williams is coming back? Nobody uh, and I hope they don't bring him back until he's 100%. But I also wonder, will he ever be 100%? He just seems so injury-prone, and they need him. They can't have Tatum playing guard, uh, Excuse me, center against people like Jokic or uh, the Greek freak when he comes in here. So I'm impressed so far, but I worry about too many minutes for Tatum. Um, and I hope the coach can find some way to lessen those minutes.
2: Yeah. And I feel like he can do a better job about it at times. Like there was they brought him back in the game the other night when he had already played like 34 minutes. There was really no reason to do it. So I think they can chip off some of those minutes. And I understand they're trying to send a message to the league. But at times you do have to rest him. But you mentioned Robert Williams, which is interesting to me with him coming back from the injury last year. They were so different when he was on the floor. compared to when he was off the floor. I mean, it's just a completely different dimension that he brings to the defense. But this is what I'm convincing myself of. Okay, so last year he got hurt during the season and he had to sit out for a number of games and he comes back into the postseason, not himself. I'm looking at it as, okay, well now he's going to have a runway before the postseason this year. So wait as long as he needs to. Don't rush him back whatsoever. And then I'm hopeful that that means that he's actually going to be healthy for the postseason for like, the first time we'll actually see what this team could have been last year with a healthy Robert Williams in the playoffs, because you basically didn't have that player. Once in a while, you'd see him against Golden State, but you were basically missing a defensive player of the year candidate in the postseason, which obviously hurt this team.
4: Yeah, I agree. Uh, as silly as it sounds, I almost you almost wish they could somehow hold him out until April. But uh, obviously you can't do that. He he is one of those injury prone players, though. Uh, when you when you, I don't know if you've seen him last. you see him play in person last year? Yeah. I mean, he, he's really thin and mm-hmm. uh, thin legs, and uh, he he's like Rogden. There's certain players that just seem to be injury prone. Uh, they brought him back too quickly. Obviously, he agreed he wanted to be in the playoffs, but he never was himself. Uh, I mean, we we would see snippets, a couple of minutes here and there, but you just knew. It. You could see when he walked off the court for a timeout that he was wincing, uh, or he was, he was walking with a slight limp. So I don't know what they do. Uh, I, you know, they're very circumspect about this injury. They're not telling us too much. The timeline keeps changing four to six weeks. Now it's eight to tw- uh, 12 weeks. Um, I hope, again, I hope they're not so worried about the best record in the league that they bring them back too quickly.
2: Yeah, I hope they do that, too, because, I mean, right now, like, you want to be careful with Al's minutes, but you got to get that guy to the finish line healthy or else it's not worth it. I mean, if he's not going to be the player that he was prior to the injury last year, it's not worth bringing him back early and risking further injury. But uh, the other guy I wanted to mention was Hauser. So Hauser last night was like two for 12 from deep, but he's still shooting 41 percent from three. And I was starting to think about it. This has got to be the best pure shooter they've had since Ray Allen, right?
4: Uh. Probably. It's interesting watching since the beginning of the season to last night. Uh, defenses are coming up on him a little differently now. Yeah. You know, he was, he was getting a lot of wide open shots uh, as they tried to double either, either Brown and Tatum. He's not getting those wide open shots either last night or the night before. And his percentage is going down a little bit because of that. He's taking tougher three-point shots people hands right in his face so i think they're going to probably manipulate the offense a little bit to get him more free open threes they do that with grant williams a little bit too um grant's much better when nobody's on him taking that three-point shot i love watching hauser shoot he's got that arc i can't remember seeing even ray allen didn't have that arc i mean i can't remember who i would compare him to but he certainly is a pure shooter he's the He's the guy they hoped Nesmith would be uh, when they drafted him first round. And, uh, you know, the question people are asking, couldn't they have used him in the playoffs last year? I mean, he was sitting on the bench.
2: Oh, I can't believe it.
4: Yeah. The answer I've heard is that they didn't think he was ready defensively. I- I'm not sure how much better he can be over four months of the summer playing defense. Uh, we could have used him off the bench in the finals. Uh, so that- that's unfortunate.
2: Yeah, and especially, too, that, well, you were playing Pritchard, right? And obviously Pritchard, diminutive in stature, he's never going to be a great defender. I mean, he tries hard and all that. But if you were willing to play Pritchard in the postseason last year, why weren't you willing to give Hauser an opportunity? Because Hauser would have brought a weapon to the game that the Celtics didn't really have. He's a pure shooter. He's uh a very efficient three-point shooter as well. It just doesn't make sense to me that they didn't try it. I do find it interesting, too. He's kind of got that Clay Thompson where he can catch the ball at his forehead and just shoot it. Like right. Normally, guys have to bring it down, but he can just do that. But yeah, I'm like retroactively very mad at Ime for that, for not giving Hauser an opportunity. I don't know how you didn't see that, right? Because especially, too, the Miami series and the Bucks series where the spacing got bad for the Celtics, they needed somebody mm-hmm. to loosen them up. So, I mean, that's a really big error on emails I don't want to get worked up about last year's postseason run but I'm starting right. to get worked up over last year's postseason run now
4: well I agree with you I I I think it was a huge error and you know it's interesting I know he's playing a lot now we're playing more now I wonder if Gallinari had not gotten hurt I mean Gallinari would have been the guy off the bench instead of Hauser this year if Gallinari had not gotten hurt we still might have not seen Hauser like we're seeing him now um And you think in the practice, this guy shoots the same way, I'm sure. Yeah, Uh, It's just puzzling. I agree. Pritchett got a lot of minutes. I think Hauser could have used some of those minutes, particularly in the uh, playoff series you mentioned. Yeah,
2: Yeah, and there were times, too, where like Derek White during the postseason was afraid to shoot the ball. So you could have found some way to get this guy in the court. It's unbelievable to me. So early on this year, I was kind of concerned about Missoula. The first couple of games, he was like refusing to call timeouts when teams were going on yeah. runs. And it's like, you don't need these guys to work through it. They just played in the NBA Finals. They don't need you to like teach them a lesson. Just call a timeout to stop the bleeding. And he wouldn't do that. Now he's getting better at that. I do find one thing interesting that they've been doing where they roll the ball up to court when they're up like 15 points. And so... <laughs> The shot clock doesn't start, but the game clock starts. And so the other teams are now picking up on this. And now they're coming up to press him and they're just going right by him. But it's it's a very interesting sort of glitch in the NBA rules that I never really seen a team take advantage of it as much as the Celtics do. They do it all the time. And that game on Friday night, Denver got really mad about that. Remember Aaron Gordon like ran through Grant Williams. They were all upset about this. So I was impressed that he pulled that out because I've never really seen an NBA team like weaponize that for lack of a better term.
4: No, I haven't either. Actually, uh, now that I think back on other teams that have come into the Garden, uh, it's been effective, particularly when you're protecting the lead in that four, end of the fourth quarter. And last year, as you know, we certainly blew a lot of fourth quarter leads yeah. between uh, November and January. So, which they haven't done this year. Um, the play you mentioned, though, when uh, Gordon plowed into Grant Williams, that was like a truck hitting a Mack truck, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, Grant went down. It was it was fun to watch. Yeah, I mean they weren't they weren't mad at each other. It just was a funny play.
2: Yeah, I I like having Grant Williams on the team. He's he's like the type of guy you need, right? Like he's gonna he annoys the refs, he annoys the other team, and he annoys his own team. Like I remember last year, he was constantly getting in shouting battles with Ime.
4: Yeah, uh, that's that's a good point. I don't see that with the new coach Mozilla. I don't see him. I see them talking all the time, but Grant Williams talks to everybody. Yeah. Pre-game, he's talking to all three refs individually. (laughs) I don't know what he's saying, you know, but he's a talker. Uh, But he talks to Missoula differently than he talked to Imi. That's a good point.
2: Yeah. I'm wondering, like, like, the Missoula thing. We're not going to know enough about him until he gets into like a postseason series, right? Because right now, the regular season, they're going to win a ton of games. They're going to be the number one or the number two seed at the worst, the three seed in the Eastern Conference. So I think once we get into the postseason, that's when we're going to find out more about Missoula.
4: I, I think so, too. I, this is a honeymoon period. We're playing well, uh, despite some injuries. I mean, we had three of our top six or seven people not playing last night. It's a honeymoon period. The players are supporting him. They're helping out, so to speak. I mean, he wasn't even in these top uh, assistant coach last year. So it's it's quite a leap for him to now be the head coach. He's not been through this, obviously. I, I want to see what happens when they have a long road trip and things aren't going so well. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's been a couple of times in the beginning of the season when we've not been looking so good and we suddenly go more isolation and that was always a key for me that uh, the Celtics got away from what they were planning to do that game I think Missoula has been good about maybe bringing them back into focus but you get into the dog days of January February March beginning of March uh, that's when we'll see how he's coaching how they're listening to him Um, I mean he doesn't have from the outside looking in Watching Emmy on the sidelines all the last year, he was a forceful, strong uh, coach with the players. He'd, he'd shout them out when he didn't agree with what they were doing. You're not seeing any of that so far this year. I don't know if that's good or bad, uh, because sometimes people like Marcus Smart, maybe you need to ask him, please don't take that kind of shot again. Uh, <laughs> you know?
2: Yeah, no, you're right about that. Yeah, like last night, maybe. Uh Oh, my God. He's never seen a shot that he doesn't like, Marcus Smart. I mean, as as many good things as he does for this team, he always has some of these shots that just make you scratch your head. But I'll take him on my team any day of the week because he comes up with all these big plays that... I mean, how about the one two games ago, or I guess it was three games ago, where he's falling out of bounds and he finds a way to throw it to Tatum, who just gets out in transition, gets an easy dunk. Like, you don't see guys make plays like that. So I'll put up with Smart. But it is interesting on the coaching note because... Last year, I remember Will Hardy was the guy that was always talking to Ime. Right. and now he's got that Utah team rolling that nobody expected to be good, and the Missoula choice was an interesting one, right? because he wasn't even on the first row. He was behind no. the bench he was behind the bench last year. but I think part of it has to be the familiarity with Brad, right? because he was the one carryover from Brad's staff, and I do kind of see a similar demeanor with Missoula and Brad rather than the comparison with Ime. like I think he's a lot. Closer to Brad than he is Ime, And I think obviously where his strength is the offensive side, it appears to me. And we'll see if this, these defensive numbers get better. I'm not as concerned about it as some other people are. But I think he has really helped the offense.
4: I, I do, too. My worry is the defense, interestingly. I don't think the defense has looked nearly as sharp this year. They're getting into a lot of uh, we score, you score, we score, you score. And then they tighten the defense in the fourth quarter. And that's not going to work against a lot of these uh, elite NBA teams. And, and you can see it in the scoring average, what they're giving up so far this year. Um, now, it could be he, he has new uh, new schemes that he's put in. Uh, I mean, we're not being told what's happening, but the defense is behind the offense so far. And often it's it's the other way around. Uh, these guys know how to play defense. We're hitting an awful lot of good three pointers so far. That always worries me early in the season because we get three point happy. Um, But I'd like to see the coaching staff put more emphasis on the defense.
2: Yeah, obviously, like coming into the season, we would have thought, oh, yeah, they could have the number one defense, but them having the number one offense is the shocker. And their defense being as bad as it is statistically, that is a little bit shocking as well. We'll see what happens when Robert Williams comes back, if they use him similar to the way that they did last year. But, yeah, it it is a little troublesome that their defense isn't near the standard that it was a season ago. Hey, so I wanted to ask you about this Mac Jones situation. So I look at the season so far, and I don't believe he's had a good game. I mean, even the game where he threw for over 300 yards against Baltimore, he had three interceptions. And since he came back from the injury, he almost looks spooked. The past two games, he's under 200 passing yards. I'm at the point now where I'm really concerned about, hey, did they miss on this guy? Is he really a franchise quarterback for the next five, six years or so?
4: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I was, I was so optimistic after his rookie year. I thought he made a lot of progress from game to game. Um, You you, you just wonder about the shift from McDaniels to Patricia. uh, And also from what we're reading, they've changed the way they're scheming uh, with the offensive line, some of their play calling. You see it evidenced in people like Bourne not even being part of the offense, where he was a key part last year. I see a lot of dumping, you know, five, 10 yard passes when uh, Jones has quick feet. Reminds me of some of the times when Brady would be frustrated by the pass rush getting too close to him and the feet would start moving and he'd dump it off quickly. And I think we're seeing too much of that from Mac Jones. Interestingly, we weren't seeing that from Zappi. So I know they made the decision they made and I guess it makes sense, but it's been pretty disappointing to watch the regression of Mac Jones this year. And he has to be healthy now. I mean, this. That ankle injury was, you know, five, six weeks ago now. Frustrating. And they have a tough second half schedule.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, it it gets a lot more difficult. So were you team Zappy? You wanted them to ride with Zappy?
4: Oh, gosh. I I, I vacillated all over the place. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I would have ro- ridden Zappy until I was 100% convinced that Jones was healthy. And... Uh, he came back not looking healthy. Uh, he, he just he didn't get out of the pocket the way he did last year. Um, he's being sacked, you know, much more frequently than he was last year. I know the offensive tackles have had issues, but they had, it's the same offensive tackles that Zappi was playing with, and uh, he wasn't being sacked like this. So I just worry about Mac Jones's confidence. Um, I don't know. I don't. I think I would have stuck with Zappy a couple more games.
2: Uh, I definitely would have, especially the the Bears game. That made no sense. I don't know why you would start him. And basically, they told ESPN prior to the game that they were going to play both quarterbacks. So if Mac couldn't make it through the whole game, what was the point of even bringing him out there? And I don't think Mac's ever going to forget that night where you have the crowd chanting for Zappy. You have Mac Jones getting booed. I don't think he ever forgets that i think that's something that's always going to register with him and i felt like that was one of the unforced errors of belichick's coaching tenure like that was a boneheaded thing and we ordinarily don't see that type of decision from bill like i don't know how he came up with that being a good idea it made no sense
4: it made no sense it uh if you're going to bring him back for that game play him the whole game You, you can't make that move after he only played two series if i recall um they were terrible series i think three and out each time but Uh, maybe you make the change at halftime, but not, not in the first quarter. Obviously, in retrospect, you don't play in that game. I mean, you ride the hot horse. Zappi was hot. I mean, he was using all his receivers. You know, one of the key things with Zappi, six or seven or eight different guys were catching the ball. We're reading now how often Mac Jones zones in with his first read and doesn't look around the field. And then when they show the replays, you can see the guy's open. So I don't know what that is, confidence, lack of confidence, um, not in sync with Patricia, doesn't like the play calling, or has happy feet and is not healthy. But it's, for us as fans, when they're five and four, and the toughest part of the schedule is coming up, uh, it doesn't look very optimistic,
5: I don't
2: think. Yeah, it's scary too, because, I mean, you mentioned Patricia earlier, We all said in the offseason, this is an idiotic decision to make Matt Patricia and Joe Judge be in charge of the offense. He's also coaching the offensive line, which all of a sudden is having issues all over the place. It's a very (laughs) unconventional thing to see the offensive play caller also be the offensive line coach. It just seems like that's a lot to ask of one guy, first of all, who's never called plays before. but I look at what Patricia's done with Mac Jones. It it doesn't really feel like they have any consistency whatsoever in terms of what they want to do. The only thing I know about the offense really is if they give it to Ramondre Stevenson, something good's going to happen. But that's pretty much it. I mean, there's no scheme advantages that they're picking up. They're not helping the quarterback. Like Mac could be helped a lot by some of the stuff that Tua does, all these RPOs and play action. And the Patriots, it seems like they don't want to take advantage of any of that stuff. And that's coaching. And Bill's the guy that decided to have Patricia be the play caller, which is just mind-numbing.
4: I don't understand their offensive philosophy. They paid ton of money to bring in two high-level tight ends. And we don't use the tight ends. We no longer use the screen pass unless it's the Stevenson. Uh, but we don't use it the way we used to use it. Uh, you watch some of these other teams, some of the other games, where the tight end is a critical part of the offense, whether it's on screens, down the middle, down the seam. Uh, we're not using our tight ends at all, and I don't know if it goes back to Mac Jones, locks into a key receiver, and he doesn't look around the field, or it's Patricia's offense that the philosophy is not to use everybody. I mentioned Bourne before. I think he's a good receiver. Um, he's not even really in the, the in the playbook, it looks like. The Parker 50-50 balls, I, I wish they would take that away, take that out of the offense. It's not working. Um, I'm with he you. They,
2: he's throwing yeah. four interceptions when he's throwing a Parker. It doesn't make any sense. And the tight ends thing, it's so irritating because last year it felt like Mac had a good connection with Hunter Henry. And there's times where Hunter Henry's just not involved in the game plan whatsoever. And then you look at, well, you're paying both these guys $12.5 million this season, and you're not getting anything out of them.
4: I don't get it. I, I think Hunter Henry is a really good ball player. And uh, like you said, He just doesn't seem to be a key part of the offense. Giannis Smith, uh, I don't know what his story is. We're not using him well. Uh, Whatever his talents are, we haven't discovered them for all the money they've paid. And again, you watch these other teams, they have rookie tight ends. I I watched the Tampa Bay game earlier this morning from Germany, and Brady has a tight end I never heard of, Otto, or or I can't remember his name, because the other tight ends are hurt. He's using him. Whenever he's in trouble, they had screen passes. They had seam passes. Uh, I think he caught a touchdown. Uh, I don't get it. I don't get the offense philosophy. And, and it goes back to Belichick. And I know and Bill, we trust is out there. But it's been a disappointing season all yep. around. Co- coaching, quarterbacking. Uh, the defensive has had lapses, unable to control the run. You know, we should be 7-2 and two or whatever. We, that Chicago game was an abomination. You, oh. you can't lose that game. You just no. can't lose that game.
2: They'd be, in so much, they'd be in a much better position, too, if they had won that game just in terms of their playoff chances. But it, I miss the Brady guy. I'll say that. I know that Tom, they had their issues earlier on this season, but maybe Tom's starting to figure some stuff out there in Tampa with the back-to-back wins.
4: It looked good today. Yeah, it looked good today.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I want to see him do well, and he's in a perfect position in terms of that division. That division is trash, so I mean, he should still be able to get to the postseason, and once Tom gets in, I, I don't know exactly what's wrong with that team. It seems like there was a lot going on at the beginning of the year. They had some issues with the offensive line, but I look up. They still get Godwin. They still have Mike Evans. I know they can't run the football, but I wouldn't be surprised in the second half of the season if Brady gets hot here.
4: They ran the football today very well. Yeah. Um, so. Maybe the, that running game is back, but yeah, I mean, we all miss Brady, but I don't know. It's very discouraging to watch what's happening last year and this year. And uh, if Mac Jones is not the answer, and we've put really all our marbles into that draft pick, uh, we're in trouble.
2: I know. I mean, it's, if he's not, I mean, they're in serious trouble. And right now, he's playing worse than Cam Newton did in 2020. Yeah. That's how bad Mac Jones has been. Yeah. All right, that is Dr. Bill Simmons. Dr. Bill, thanks so much for coming on. We'll have to do it again.
4: Thank you for having me. Take care.
3: This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower, what's next? Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.
2: Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from MassLive.com, it is Chris Catillo. Chris, thanks for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here, Brian. Thanks. All right, so let's start with my nightmare because there was a report a couple of days ago or last night, whenever it was John Heyman originally had it, about the Phillies have interest in... Xander Bogart's. Obviously, it helps Boris to have this out there, but it does make sense, right? I mean, the Dombrowski connection and the Phillies really do need a shortstop. How serious do you think Philadelphia is about going after Xander?
1: Yeah, I mean the things you mentioned, I think, are the big things, right? Like Dave Dombrowski's a guy who, and when he identifies a guy that he wants, you know, he goes and gets him. And there's a, a real long precedent of him going and getting guys that he liked at a previous stop, JD Martinez. Ian Kinsler, David Price, those are all guys that he had in Detroit that ended up in Boston. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all. The Phillies are obviously a team that similar market to Boston, a team that's going to compete to uh, obviously, you know, be in the playoffs and and potentially be on next year after reaching the World Series this year. I think they're kind of an attractive destination for Bogarts, especially if they, you know, offer a, a pretty good deal. So, look, when you opt out, when you hit free agency, when you do that type of stuff, you are, you know, a free agent. And, and at that point uh, we saw it with Freddie Freeman and the Dodgers last year, Freddie Freeman and the Braves last year, right? Like once you're on the open market, and you can hear other teams pitches. It's something that, you know, Xander's never experienced in more than a decade being with the Red Sox. So I think all these types of things we're going to hear, you know, are real, whether it be the Giants, Dodgers, Phillies, Cubs, you name the team, um, the shortstop carousel is going to be really interesting. Um, and, and, you know, people are, Hating to see that, hating to see, you know, that name that's been synonymous with the Red Sox for so long being linked to other teams. But that's just the reality of what free agency is. So now that he's out there testing the market, you know, you can't rule anything out. I do think it's too early, you know, for um, any of those guys to get close to the signing. Right. The free agency really opened about a week ago. We got to see all these qualifying offers play out on Tuesday and then, you know, how the front market will develop. But, um, you know, I don't doubt it for one second, knowing Dombrowski and knowing, you know, the kind of pursuits that he launches at this t- point in the offseason.
2: Well, and the interesting part about this one to me is just how this reflects on Heim Bloom, right? Because obviously the ownership group moved on from Dave Dombrowski. They brought in Heim Bloom, and then how would it look for Heim Bloom if the guy that they decided to get rid of actually lands their star player, their most marketable player, if you will? Like I got to imagine that'd be something that ownership looks at Heim Bloom and says, "What the hell happened?"
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, I don't think Heim is is worried. In in those terms, I think he just wants Xander as part of the team because he you know knows what the guy means to the organization and knows that he's a good player and and knows that he wants to get a deal done. I think that's first and foremost, right? We heard time and time again in Vegas last week. He's our first priority. He's our top priority. He's option A. Um, you know, it would be kind of a bad undercurrent, but I think just losing Xander, period, is going to be you know if not just a bad look for Haim, but just something that would be difficult for him to swallow. Um, in terms of, you know, this is obviously a guy that they want to keep and a guy he's grown close to, I think in the last three or four years. So do you think
2: if say the hypothetical is Bogarts goes elsewhere, would they get in on like the Trey Turner sweepstakes? Or do you think that they actually would consider moving story over to short?
1: I think they're open to everything. You know, I, I, there was a report last week that they were calling around on second baseman, seeing who's available in trades. That was from MLB.com is Mark Feinstein and Bloom called that overblown, but like, I'm sure they're doing it. Um, you know, that's, what teams do, that's what front offices do, right? Like there's contingencies on contingencies and there's plan B and plan C. And I said, you know, the Red Sox, you know, doing their due diligence, they wouldn't be doing their job. And I think I, you know, I tweeted exactly this. If, you know, they, they need to consider everything right up to possibly reanimating Babe Ruth, right? Like, I mean, they need to really <laughs> look at every possible option they have. So if that is plan A, Xander, plan B, Carlos Correa, Trey Turner, Dansby Swanson, plan C, Moves, Story or Kike to short and sign a second baseman like they just have to you know they don't know how the market's gonna you know shake out Um, you know they don't know where all these dominoes are gonna fall obviously if they had their preference then it would be Xander at shortstop Story at second and that would be um, you know kind of how they go forward but now that Xander's free they don't have the exclusive negotiating rights anymore they have to prepare so my guess would be that they would, you know, probably look at one of those big shortstops. There are, you know, I think all three of those players in Swanson, Turner, and Correa, you know, offer different things that would be intriguing to them. I think Alex Cora's relationship with Carlos Correa and, you know, Correa's reputation, you know, sign stealing scandal aside in terms of being a really good teammate, you know, being a really good fit and, you know, with a lot of media attention been through everything, he's a guy that does make sense to me. Um, But I think, you know, until Bogart signs elsewhere, None of that stuff, I think, is is there uh, is at the forefront of their mind. I do think that um, it's probably unlikely that they'd go and sign Correa like in three weeks and just say, have that be the goodbye to Xander. We saw the Braves do that where they brought in Olson last year, and you know that was kind of like, oh my God, I guess Freeman's gone. I just don't see the Red Sox doing that. I think that you know they know that um, you know the fan backlash, even if you're getting potentially even a better player in a Correa or a Turner. You know, not saying they are; they're all kind of comparable. Um, the backlash and, and kind of the, the devil you don't know versus the devil you know type of thing comes in. So uh, again, really early stages. Um, but Correa is a guy that I think that they could definitely look at down the road.
2: Yeah, I would prefer Correa to Turner and Swanson as well, if that's like the avenue. And he's still relatively young. I know he deals with injuries a lot, but if Bogarts is gone, I would, I mean, Correa would be an incredible for this team. And you mentioned the core relationship too. How about the other big guy that's not a free agent yet, Devers, right? So- The Red Sox and him apparently aren't close to a deal. We know that prior to the season, they offered him the Austin Riley $212 million. What do you think the likelihood of getting a deal done with Devers is prior to the season?
1: Uh, Prior to the season and and prior to spring training, I think, are very different things. I think that right now, you know, they're just feeling each other out. Um, You know, there was kind of, uh, I think, you know, all those different reports. And I was involved in that a couple weeks ago where people were talking about, oh, they're moving closer. They're trying to get a deal done. They're going to give him a big offer. In the minds of the Red Sox, like they don't have to make their last and, and best offer right now with Devers. He's under control for a year. It doesn't seem like they're going to entertain trading him at all um, like they did with Mookie. I think they're different situations. I think that they think there's a path to a deal with Devers when they didn't necessarily think that with Mookie. And it kind of time proved that out that there wasn't. Um, on a kind of a sidebar, you know, I always say and have and reported and written that I think Mookie signed that deal with the Dodgers because the economic landscape of baseball changed post-pandemic, right? And he signed that in Mm -hmm. July of 2020. So I don't think he would have signed that deal with the Red Sox if it was offered. You know, I know he might've said otherwise, but the Red Sox, you know, walked away from the negotiation saying there's really nothing we can do to get this guy signed. I think with Devers, they don't feel that way. Um, So At this point, it kind of seems like, you know, in terms of, obviously, you know, they have a lot of manpower, they have a lot of people in the front office who have important jobs and they can do, you know, multiple things at at the same time, but there's more pressing issues, right? Nathan Evaldi, which I'm sure we'll get to briefly, his qualifying offer this week, you know, there's option decisions and qualifying offer decisions last week, Xander Bogart situation, obviously at the forefront. I think that, you know, just because they have time with Devers, it's probably, you know, if he were to accept their offer, whatever it was, their latest offer tomorrow, sure, they get an extension done, but... You know, hearing and, and reporting that they're they're far off at this point and that nothing's you know really hot there. Um, I think it's a little too early for that. Now, in spring training the time to kind of sit down. You know, you'll know what your payroll looks like. You know what you can handle. You know who you've added on a long term deal, whether that be Bogarts or Correa or a pitcher, whatever it is. At that point, I think that they probably really get down to brass tacks and, and, and in my mind, iron something out. I think that there is pressure to not let another homegrown guy get away. I think that it's not caving in that pressure necessarily, but I think it's going to be a factor. And I think that they'll probably go above and beyond for a guy in Devers who, you know, has, is kind of still underrated somehow, but one of the preeminent superstars in baseball and a guy who can play in Boston, which is no small feat. And uh, I think they realize that.
2: Yeah. And selfishly, from a fan's perspective here, I don't want to go through another year like we just did with Bogarts, where it's hanging over the organization the entire year. Yeah. Just get it done. Well, you got to
1: think about think about all the content for the beat writers, so though. That's huge. Oh, that's true. I mean, you'll get a yeah. lot of quotes out of that. I mean, it's, it's not all bad. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> that's true. I, I just don't think if I, I could go through it again like we did with Bogarts this year. <laughs> they can say whatever they want, but it hung over the team all year. I mean, you had the moment right. at the end of the season where Cora pulled him from the game, and it's like, there's nobody at that game because it's raining and you're like, holy shit, this could be it for Xander Bogarts as a member of the organization. So it just right. stunk from that perspective. So, hey, you mentioned Nate, he gets the qualifying offer. You think they'll work out a shorter term deal with him to bring him back maybe on a two year deal?
1: Yeah, Rob Bradford and a couple other people uh, have reported in the last couple of days they did make him a multi-year offer. I mean, uh, who knows what that is? Like if it's two for you know, two for 28, you know, does he take that at 14 million a year after making 17 million the last four years? You know, who's to say, I do think that Nate aldi is a candidate to sign either way, whether it's with the Red Sox or with someone else really early in the process, because, you know, he's definitely talking to other teams with interest and in seeing if they're going to go beyond what the Red Sox are offering. And, and if it makes sense with the offers and the, and the types of, uh, the types of offers he's getting go beyond that qualifying offer. We've seen it you know, time and time again. Guys that are offered the qualifying offer, their talks ramp up really quickly with other teams. There's a few guys in this boat this year, Tyler Anderson being one of them, um, Martin Perez, an old friend being one of them. So I do think that it you know, wouldn't be a surprise to see some clarity on Nate's situation in the next few days. I think it would be the smart, prudent move for him to actually accept that qualifying offer it locks him in for one year 19.65 million come and prove that he's healthy prove that he's good I'm obviously that's always a big question with him that's going to be higher than the AAV he gets on the open market I don't think the Red Sox really want to go beyond two years or two years with an option that's just a guess kind of an educated guess because of the way they handle aging pitchers so it might come down to something like does he do two years for 34 million or does he do the one year for nineteen point six five? So, you know, you give up the little bit in the average annual salary for the security with Nate. You know, he's a guy that already has that big deal. I always think, you know, for, for people like, you know, me and, and regular people out there, I think people, you know, underestimate um, this a little bit. But like a guy like Michael Walker has gone year to year, never had that guarantee. He's pitched for three different teams in the last three years. And he has only and this is where it comes down to like the different spheres we're in, but <laughs> like only, you know, X amount of million in his career. Nate signed that $68 million deal, right? That was all guaranteed. He played that out over the last four years. He's not looking for that, you know, you know, set for life uh, type of deal anymore. Maybe he goes year to year. A guy like Waka probably wants that longer term deal where if he gets, you know, three for 52, whatever it may be like, and you can lock that in. I think they're in different cases that way with Nate, I could see it going either way. I I think that he's a good candidate to accept that qualifying offer, but if he really wants to lock it in, you know, get the security, be in Boston, a place that he likes for, you know, maybe two for 32, two for 34, you know, maybe two with an option, whatever it is, you know, maybe three years at a lower rate. Um, and none of that would surprise me. I, I do think he wants to be here, but same as with Bogarts or any of these guys, once you get to the open market, you have teams making offers and pitching you and all that type of stuff, you know, we've seen it time and time again guys do leave Um, but with him it seems like they're heading toward an early resolution which anything the Red Sox can do to cross you know something off their to-do list at this point I'm sure they'll take
2: yeah no I'm with you and I I would do the same thing if I was Nate I mean it'd be nice to have that amount of cash but I would take the 19 mil prove him healthy and then try to get a bigger deal or a multi-year deal next offseason coming back from the injury that he had where we all know after he came back from the IL he never got his velocity back, and he wasn't the same pitcher. So that's a pretty good deal for a guy that was struggling in terms of that at the end of the season.
1: That's a good point, because you don't know how teams are going to react to that, too. You know, if teams you know ask for explanations, and his agents are going to say, oh, you know, he'll he'll be back, he'll be back. But if he hasn't proven it, then it'll be interesting to see how teams do value that.
2: All right, so what about some of the big-name pitchers out there? Carlos Rodon, you have Justin Verlander. I mean, there's a lot of good pitchers out there. Chris Bassett is Mm -hmm. out there. There's a lot of guys that are going to get— big contracts. Do you think that the Red Sox will try to land one of those big fish?
1: Yeah, basically, I mean, I think, you know, there are guys out there, whether it be Senga or a guy like Radon, there are some of those guys that make sense. But at a certain point, you know, there's just too many uh, arms that are already, you know, kind of part of the organization, right? You have Bayo, you have Pavetta, who I think are both locked in. You have your two high upside, high risk options in Sale and Paxton. You have Garrett Whitlock being part of the rotation now. Um, And if they go out and sign the or if they, you know, maybe re-sign Michael Walker, all of a sudden there's just not enough innings to go around. I still think Rich Hill is a candidate to come back. That's a good problem to have. We've seen that over and over again over the last few years with guys getting hurt and needing depth options. But, you know, I I think it's probably at a point where, you know, they are, um, you know, might decide the rotation with internal guys and, and maybe add one or two depth arms. Um, that's not to say there's not a lot of talent out there. You know, my partner at mass live, Chris Smith keeps writing that he thinks Justin Verlander would be a great fit. You know, I don't think that that is, uh, the worst idea in the world. I think a guy like we makes sense. Um, you know, so I, they're going to stay engaged. I think on all these guys, you know, they're, they're talking to Andrew Heaney and Seth Lugo heard that in Vegas. There was a report that they were interested in Tyler Anderson. So, you know, a lot of these guys make sense on paper, but is there a spot for them? I think is the big question. Yeah,
2: I mean, I would love the Verlander thing. I'd love Rodon as well. Just to have somebody at the front end of that rotation, which they desperately need right now. Right. Hey, Chris, before we let you go, two guys, two bats that I've been interested in. And one has already kind of been linked to the Red Sox. Jose Abreu, who I think mm-hmm. would fit perfectly on this team, because it, it feels like Hosmer is kind of redundant, right? Because you're playing casts as he hits from the left side. What role does Hosmer really have? And I'd like Abreu, who we know can DH as well. And the other one is it would cost more money as Brandon Nimmo. Any chance we see either one of those guys in a Red Sox uniform?
1: I think they're both great fits. You know, Abreu is a guy that uh, kind of fits your roster perfectly in terms of Casas is going to be your everyday first baseman. um, But on days where he can't play or, you know, days where they're facing a lefty that they want to avoid, you can have Abreu play. Um, And then he can be, on most other days, you're you're basically quasi-full-time DH. Think about, you know, a guy like J.D. Martinez just more versatility and more flexibility to impact the roster in other ways. I think as good as JD was and as good as the Red Sox, DH eight spot has been for the last 20 years with Ortiz and JD Martinez, there is something to having a guy there who, you know, can play positions and can go and help you out. And on the flip side of that, if you want to give a guy like Rafael Devers an off day in the field, then he can go and DH. You've seen that happen here and there with those guys in the last couple of years and JD playing outfield in 2022, that did not happen at all. JD did not play an inning out there. Um, so therefore, you know, Abreu would be kind of a perfect fit in that way. And, you know, it does seem like they are linked to him so far. Nimmo's a guy that, you know, a little bit of an underrated player with the Mets could be your leadoff guy, corner outfielder, give you some power, uh, give you some speed. You know, I think that he's a guy that, um, you know, definitely fits the roster. You know, I've been writing now for a couple of weeks that I would not be shocked to see them move on from Alex Verdugo trading him. It kind of seems like maybe a sell low move, but I just think there's there's some frustration with him in the organization. He's a guy that's two years away from free agency. You know, maybe another organization's really high on him, thinks they can unlock all the talent that the Red Sox saw when they acquired him from Mookie. Maybe they trade him and sign Nemo. It's kind of an outside the box thought, but you know they have the money, so why not uh, go pursue you know all these position players and see where they all kind of fall in. Yeah,
2: I'm with you too on Verdugo. I've kind of soured on him. I mean, his defense definitely slipped. It didn't seem like he was in the best shape this season. And like, I know yeah. all this stuff about, and I've referenced it before, like his expected numbers are way better, but the mm-hmm. expected numbers aren't that great either. Like they're fine, but it's yeah. not like he's, he's not somebody that I would want to give a long-term contract to either. Like I'd much rather have a guy like pay the money to Nimo and maybe see what you can get from Verdugo. But that's an interesting one to monitor. That's Chris Catillo from MassLive.com. Make sure to follow him on Twitter throughout free agency with great updates and whatnot. So Chris, we really appreciate the time, man.
0: and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.
2: Welcome back into Off the Pike. So I did want to get to some Patriots stuff here because obviously on the bye week, I'm watching all these other 1 o'clock Eastern games. And one of the things that stuck out to me is how easy Tua's life is, right? So if you watch that game today or any of it on the red zone, Tua throws for 285 yards and three touchdowns. And he came into the week the highest-rated passer in the NFL. He's been tremendous. And I just look at what the Dolphins do with Tua and what the Patriots don't do with Mac. They came out of the same offense at Alabama and if you look at Tua, he's fourth in passing attempts out of RPOs, fourth in play action attempts as well. So these are easy things for the quarterback to speed up his decision-making process, if you will. And if you look at Tua, this is how good Mike McDaniel and that staff is in Miami. This season, Tua is at 2.6 in terms of his time to throw. That's 7th in the NFL but he's also at 9.1 intended air yards per attempt, which is fifth in the NFL. So that is a ridiculous combo in terms of being that high up in time to throw and that high up in intended air yards per attempt. Like for example, Tom right now is number one in the NFL in time to throw, gets rid of it quicker than anybody in the league, but he's 28th in intended air yards per attempt. Like Tua being seventh in time to throw and fifth in intended air yards, that shouldn't happen, right? So essentially what this is, it's a combination of, Speed, it's a combination of scheme, and it's figuring out what your player does well and doing that type of stuff, which it just feels like, from my perspective, the Patriots don't do that whatsoever, because what we see from Miami is they go out there, they get Tyreek Hill, they have Jalen Waddle, they have weapons, they have a quarterback that they're catering to his skill set, and look at what the results are. I'm not telling you that Mac would have the same exact season as Tua is having for Miami, but... Miami has done everything it possibly can to help its quarterback. And it was evident today watching that, that they were doing everything they possibly could to help out Tua. And the Patriots don't do that whatsoever with Mac Jones, which is sort of the irritating part about this whole situation. And I even look at, like, for example, Kirk Cousins. They had that crazy game against the Bills. But if you look at what that team does for him, Kevin O'Connell, of course, the head coach, who came over from the Rams under Sean McVay's staff, And Kirk Cousins, like Tua and like Mac Jones, he's not super talented, right? Nobody would say that Kirk Cousins is one of the most talented quarterbacks in the NFL, but they take advantage of some things that he does well. He's number one in the NFL entering today in attempts at a play action. That's how you should be using Kirk Cousins. Make life easy for him, right? So these two teams, what they have, scheme with Kirk Cousins, it's heavy play action. With Tua, it's RPOs. And they have elite players. They drafted Justin Jefferson a couple of years ago when they traded away Stephon Diggs. What Tua has is an elite player in Tyreek Hill and a scheme. So when you have quarterbacks that aren't super talented, right, that aren't the Josh Allens of the world, you have to help them out with the scheme and the personnel. And right now with the Patriots, now, maybe down the road, Tyquan Thornton turns out to be that player. But right now, they're not doing either one. When you have a quarterback that is limited from a talent perspective, you should be doing both these things, helping them with the talent on the field with them and scheming it up. The Patriots don't do either one of those things. And we're seeing... You can have a quarterback that's not uber talented and you can get results. The Patriots just haven't got that opportunity or they haven't done it yet. And the other thing I was just looking at in terms of the reason I point this out is because if Mac is going to be successful in the NFL, he needs what Tua has. He needs what Kirk Cousins has right now. He needs elite playmakers and he needs a good scheme because Mac's not going to do it, as we mentioned, with his talent. I mean, if you look at the AFC quarterbacks right now, just on talent, how many is Mac really better than Josh Allen? No. Zach Wilson, from a talent perspective, no. I'm not telling you that he's better than Zach Wilson's better than Mac, but Zach Wilson is more talented. Tua, I would say Tua slightly more talented. He has that quick release. Lamar, obviously no. Burrow, obviously no. Deshaun Watson, when he comes back for the Browns, obviously he's more talented. Kenny Pickett, Max more talented than I would say he's more talented than Tannehill. Matt Ryan, at this point in his career, he's more talented than Lawrence. No. Mills, yes, Mahomes, no, Herbert, no, Russell Wilson, no, and Carr, no. So I have him like 12th in terms of talent. And it's really difficult to win that way in the NFL in terms of you have a quarterback that's limited from a talent perspective without helping him. And this isn't to defend Mac by saying it's all the Patriots fault. But when you have a player that is limited in terms of his skill set, you need to be doing everything you possibly can to help the quarterback. And right now, when you look at Mac Jones, they're not doing that. And here's the interesting part of this going forward. You look at the schedule. After Zach Wilson, here are the quarterbacks the Patriots are going to play. Kirk Cousins, Josh Allen twice, Kyler Murray, Derek Carr, Joe Burrow, and Tua. So if Mac doesn't look like he belongs on the same field as those guys, the Patriots are going to have to take a long, hard look and determine, hey, are we so sure we have the guy? And I can't believe I'm saying that right now, but that's where I'm at. I mean, I am really worried about the future of Mac Jones, if we don't see something significantly different in the second half of the season. All right, we got time for a couple of calls. That number is 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172.
5: Hi, Brian. My name is Sarah, and I'm from Somerville, Mass. I'm calling to express my deep disappointment with the Red Sox organization this year, especially as it now seems questionable that Bogras will resign. Between the non-pursuit of Schwarber and Jose Iglesias, and the badly handled trader Christian Vasquez, the signing of the light-hitting and off injured Trevor Story, and their abysmal handling of the Bogarts and Devers contract extensions, I am totally confused as to what the front office is trying to achieve. Why give such a generous contract a story instead of paying Schwarber and or Bogart for some of that money? They had pretty good players at second base already, and Bogarts' defense has vastly improved over the years. The idea that Story could be a replacement for Bogarts, either in terms of hitting, team leadership, and fan popularity, is certainly a long shot. Why can't the Sox accept that Bogarts is a star player and pay him accordingly? Now I fear that the Sox will also lowball Ivaldi and further alienate Devers and will lose them as well. I'm curious who you think is primarily responsible for this mess. Is it Bloom, Henry, or both? And where does the team go from here? Thank you.
2: Appreciate. It. a lot of meat on the bone there. So I'll start with the last portion there. Who's it on? In some way, yeah, it's on the ownership group because they're in charge of the team, but they've basically given Hein Bloom free reign to do whatever he wants. So it's on Bloom. Yeah, going back to last year's offseason, I never understood. I've said it multiple times, the lack of interest in Schwarber, the lack of realizing how impactful he was to that lineup where you have a guy that makes pitchers throw strikes hitting in front of your big bats like the Raphael Devers of the world that made no sense to me whatsoever. The story situation is an interesting one. I did not hate the move at the time, but I felt like, okay, this means they're going to sign Xander Bogart's long-term eventually. And now it appears that who knows what the hell is going to happen here. As Scott Boris is going to be doing his thing and trying to get Xander the biggest contract he possibly can. There's probably a number that the Red Sox do not want to go to. And the problem is you had time to get this done. Like, You shouldn't not have gotten here with Xander. Xander wanted to renegotiate, not renegotiate, but wanted to negotiate during the season. There was a window for you to get that deal done. My issue here with Bloom just going forward is, and you outlined some of the moves that he made that were bad moves, is this is a very important offseason for this organization. They have a ton of money coming off the books, and I just don't have faith in Hein Bloom. Now, look, if he makes a couple of big signings that I really like, I'll say I was wrong, but I don't trust Hein Bloom to make the right moves, because we've seen it recently, has it Now, uh, just real quickly on Evaldi, got the qualifying offer. I would guess they'll try to get a two-year deal done, something along those lines. But if Nate plays on the qualifying offer, I, I would not mind that either, because, I mean, that's a lot of money, and you do wonder about the health long-term with Evaldi. All right, 617-396-7172, good time for another call.
5: Hey,
3: what's up, Brian? This is Jared. I'm out here in San Diego, California, originally from the Live Free or Die State, New Hampshire. I'm diehard Celtics. Watch them all the time. And, uh yeah, they're looking good. I was wondering, what do you think they need, man? I don't know, Robert Williams with the knee injury, all that stuff. And uh I was thinking about a backup center, and why aren't we signing Dwight Howard? He went to Taiwan.
2: He could have been our backup. But I think we need a big. What else do you think the C's need? Keep it up. Appreciate it, man. In terms of the big, Cornette, like the numbers with Cornette on the floor are really good. He does this weird thing, too, where when there's a guy out taking a corner three, he just jumps up. He doesn't go towards the guy. He just jumps up. The Cornette contest, if you will, which seems to be working. I wouldn't go out there and sign another big right now just because of the fact that you are eventually going to get Rob back. And I'm fine with Grant playing those five minutes. But other than that, there's really not a pressing need for this team. I mean, you could... Look at acquiring another shooter or something. If you can get somebody to bite on, like if somebody's interested in Peyton Pritchard, I feel like he's kind of redundant on this team right now. Obviously, it's important now because Brogdon's hurt, but that seems like a guy that could be a candidate for a trade down the road. But in terms of what they need, they have everything they need to win a championship. It's just about getting there healthy with Al, making sure you don't put too many minutes on Al as it pertains to Robert Williams. If we get the Robert Williams that we saw for a good portion of last year, this Celtics team should be the favorite to win the NBA Finals. So, I mean, I really like this team. I was at the game on Friday night. Like, the garden has been really electric this season, and seeing Tatum in person this year, it's a different experience. You can just tell that he wants to destroy the other team. Not to say that he didn't in the past or anything along those lines, but he's at the peak of his powers, and it's noticeable where every night he's the best player on the floor. Like, that game against the Nuggets, Jokic is the two-time defending MVP. And if you went to that game or if you just watch it on TV, there was no doubt who was the best player on the floor that night. And that's not to disrespect Jokic. The guy's a great player. But Tatum was clearly the best player on the floor that night. All right, as always, if you want to get your voicemails in, that number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in a couple of days.
0: So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you
3: by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower, what's next? Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.